This is womensleadershipsuccess.com radio episode number 81. Do you sometimes question your leadership skills? Do you think only women like Marilyn Hewson, president of Lockheed Martin, Christine Lagarde, managing director of the International Monetary Fund, or Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, can be great leaders? It's simply not true. Listen today and learn how to take small steps that will change your leadership skills and move you toward your goals. Welcome to Women's Leadership Podcast, showing you how to influence people, improve your performance, and advance your career. Brought to you by women's leadership and career expert Sabrina Brom and womensleadershipsuccess.com. Here's your chance to meet women trendsetters leading the way to success, accomplishment, and balance in business and life. No matter if you're a manager, CEO, or entrepreneur, join Sabrina for coaching and no-nonsense advice to improve your career and bottom line. This is Sabrina Brahm with womensleadershipsuccess.com. Today we are interviewing Sean Hunter. He is a serial entrepreneur, a best-selling author, founder and president of Mindscaling, a company dedicated to creating intelligent online learning products. For over Hunter has interviewed, collaborated with, and filmed hundreds of leading business authors, executives, and business school faculty in an effort to assemble video learning solutions. And he's also written a wonderful book called The Small Acts of Leadership, 12 Intentional Behaviors That Lead to Big Impact. Welcome, Sean. Hi, Sabrina. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're you're welcome. Um, I really enjoyed your book, and, and one of the questions that came up for me when I was reading it was, what what was your um, inspiration to actually write this book? Well, it's interesting. My first book was about innovative cultures and innovative leadership, and and it was it, it tries to do a lot. It covers a lot of expansive ground, and and in some dimension, it, it can be sort of dense. Uh, and that is, you know, not really accessible. And the more I dug into leadership, the more I had conversations with people who felt like it was this very abstract, black box idea. You know, I can't be a leader. Only Lee Iacocca and Steve Jobs and Mahatma Gandhi and these kinds of iconic characters, only they, you know, can be leaders. And I thought, you know, that's not true. It's just simply not true. So, what I was trying to do in this book, which I hopefully I did successfully, is to demonstrate that leadership is, in fact, accessible to all of us in our work, in our community, in our life, and through these small intentional behaviors that anyone can take. Beautiful. Um, and I, I, I really like what you're saying because I think so many times we, we take too big of a chunk you know, like, well, how do we do the whole thing? But what you're saying is we can, basically we can break it into small small pieces and really develop good leadership ability. Is that correct? Yeah, precisely. You know, one step at a time. Our, my example is I myself have to constantly remind myself of these principles and ideas that I write about and speak about. I'm in the middle of uh, building a small company. We're growing quickly, and there's a lot of confusion, a lot of agility, a lot of sort of tumultuousness in the development of a small company. And when I reach those moments of 
indecision or, oh, no, what do I do now? I just, I, I, my joke is I take a deep breath and I, you know, open the, open <laughs> the pages and remind myself of these key principles about how to build confidence, how to create clarity on teams, how to build uh, deny convention, how to take a break, which is very important, and these other key principles that I talk about. So, share. Can you start with what you think is the most important of those principles, and give us an example of of how you do it? Um. Well, I'll I'll take the I'll take the last chapter. The last chapter is called "Take a Break," uh-huh. and I originally wrote, I originally wrote it as the first chapter that we need to learn how to check out in this always-on, volatile, chaotic, tsunami of information culture, everyone says, well, how do I get more leadership presence? I want more, you know, just leadership presence and influence. And, And the answer to that is leadership presence requires being present, actually being present. Uh-huh. That's a that's a that's a line I got from a friend of mine. His name's Scott Eblen, and he writes about the intersection of mindfulness and leadership. And one of the ways, of course, to do this is to turn off the devices and the screens and get outside and take a walk and put yourself into different challenging or relaxing or mindful kinds of activities and many times as we all know that's where the greatest synthesis and creativity comes to us in these moments of repose wherever you happen to be for me it's i like to go ride my bike and i'll have really strong complex breakthroughs out wandering the countryside on my bicycle that that's that's a great example and i'm thinking so many as an executive coach, what I hear so many times is people saying, well, I don't I don't have time to take a break or I don't have time to uh, ponder or think about anything because I'm too busy. Any any response to that? I do. I have a response to that. And my response is, yes, you do. It's a choice. And I get the, I get the same thing all the time. People, cause I, you know, I have a full-time job. Now I have a full-time company. I'm doing a lot of traveling and speaking and things like that. And, and people say, well, how, how do you have time to write? How, how do you have time to – and I said, well, it's just a, a choice. It's a choice to sit and, and, and read and digest information and try to synthesize it and make disparate connections and build new ideas. That's just a, a conscious choice in the same way that exercise is a conscious choice, in the same way – that being mindful is a is a conscious choice. So th- th- that's my answer. I, I think that's true, and I think also when you do when you are mindful and when you make that choice, it also ends up saving you time in your regular work. You, you, I com- I ahead. completely agree. I completely agree. I th- I think a lot of times. When I personally get overwhelmed by a big project, a big task, you know, somebody says I need the answer to X, Y, Z, or I need the big spreadsheet or presentation, and I think, oh, this is a huge task, and I'll put it off, and I'll postpone it, and I'll put it off, (laughs) and then 
but the interesting thing is when I actually sit down to do it and I do the task, whatever it is, write the article, build the presentation, submit the report, send the, in the, the, the contracts, fill out the forms, whatever it is, the actual doing of it doesn't take nearly as long, nearly as much time as you anticipate that it's where it will. It's more the doing of it that that the anticipation. And so I would argue that all the time that you spend wringing your hands about oh no and the deadlines that you have in in a week or ten days or two weeks, in the time leading up to it, you're actually quietly, tacitly, passively uh, working on that puzzle all the time. So you know, in the background. And so when you actually sit down and do it, you can synthesize all these different little ideas that you've, you've put together over the past week or two weeks or three weeks or however long you've procrastinated the project. Uh, I think that's, that's really good advice. Um, and you, you also you talk about what are other key attributes that really help people to um, be luckier or make better decisions? Well, so, for example, luck. You, you take the subject of, of lucky. Some people consider themselves lucky. Some people consider themselves not lucky. And interestingly, these, this can be a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you, if you believe that you're a lucky person, you come to expect it. In other words, you start to describe upcoming experiences in a positive light. You start to describe upcoming interactions with other people, meetings, in a very positive sort of uh, optimistic tone. In other words, you begin to anticipate your own good fortune, and that can have a self-fulfilling prophecy. The other thing that, that lucky people tend to do is they tend to deny... Uh, any bad luck. In other words, they'll phrase things in terms of, well, you know, it really could have been much worse. Uh, you know, it could it could have turned out really terrible. I'll give I'll give you an example. I, I'm not certain. I, this was in the study. I'm not certain I put it in the book. Mm -hmm. But we just had an election, right? Mm -hmm. And let's re let's rewind to uh, 2000. 2000 was Bush Gore and the famous, you know, the hanging chads in Florida and the recount and, and all that. And interestingly, what some researchers did was they asked people, oh, looks like this is going to go to the Supreme Court. Looks like we're not going to have an answer here for weeks uh, in the future. If Bush is declared the winner, how will you feel? And they, they'd say, they say, oh, it'll be the end of the world. I won't be able to get out of bed. I won't be able to think straight. It's just going to be the end of all, you know, the end of mankind. It'll be the end of, it'll be horrible. And then they ask those same people the following day, after the Supreme Court reaches their decision, how do you feel now? And more often they describe their feelings in that circumstance as, well, you know, I guess it didn't go our way. I guess it's a real bummer, but things will work out. It'll be all right. You know, I, 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 I guess I guess how bad can it be? So in, a, in other words, 
they'll tend to reframe both future and past experiences as really it could have been much worse or it could it could be a lot worse. That's one of the traits of, of people who describe themselves as lucky. Mm-hmm. So they they have a way to frame what uh, what has already happened in a way that is positive or shows some hope for the future, and they right. they. Right. Prepare in advance for things like a meeting, for instance, by by thinking of the best possible outcome, not the worst. Yes. Now I have a little bit of a twist to this. Okay. Which is a, a lot of the, the research demonstrates that instead of just pumping yourself up like I can do this, I can do this, I can do, this, I got this, I got this, like as in the old. Uh, uh, story of I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Mm-hmm. If you in, if you instead ask self inquisitive questions like, Can I can I really do this? Do I have what it takes? Do I have the experience, the ideas to make a meaningful contribution? If you ask yourself those self inquisitive kinds of questions, you'll have to answer them. And when you answer them, that bolsters your confidence because you're rehearsing the outcome. So instead of simply clenching your fist and, and you know, stamping your feet or striking a power pose, um, if you ask yourself those self-interrogative questions, you'll have to answer them, and then you'll anticipate the outcome, and you'll visualize and rehearse what you're going to do in the moment. Beautiful. And, and also, if you're if there's an issue... If you visualize what you would do if you were in charge, what's an outcome that you think would work here? That's the same kind of thing, right? Wait, describe that question again. So what I'm saying is if you, let's say you're 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 going into a meeting and you know the company's having an issue or a problem, if you you act as if you are in charge of this and figure out what would, what possible things might happen that would be good outcomes, that that helps to boost your confidence too? Would that be true? Yes. To the extent that you can visualize and clearly describe outcomes, that will absolutely boost your confidence. The, the other trick, it's not even a trick, it's, it is to take action. Action creates clarity. Clarity creates communication and, and collaboration. I'll give you a quick example. Um, as a company uh, in, in India called HCL Technologies, big, global, high-tech company. And several years ago, some junior programmers got together and they approached their boss and said, we'd like to create our own internal social media networking site, okay, a Yammer, Facebook kind of internal social media site. And their bosses said, Ah, uh, you know, what a waste of time. Like, we can just, we can source that. There's vendors out there. We can license it. We can install it. We'll just use some third-party system. That's not our core business. Plus, if we make it, well, then you got to debug it. Then you got to own it. Then we got to task engineers to support it. You know, we don't need that headache. And then the junior programmers, they went off and they made it anyway. They just did it. They ignored them and did it anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as a result, then they bought the prototype, the working social media network uh, called Meme, back to their boss, 
who said, oh, oh, you've, you've actually built it. Here's a, a prototype. Here's something I can, I can play with, I can get on board with. And the point of the story is that action creates clarity and, um, and building something, creating something of value will more often be perceived as, as a welcoming gesture, something, a project somebody would like to support, as opposed to something you pitch over the back of the napkin or around the water cooler, because then whoever you're speaking to, your boss or your colleagues, they'll perceive risk. So my recommendation is instead of just pitching an idea, make a prototype, create a design, start to build it, get in action, take the action, because it'll be a gesture to your colleagues that, well, here I go. Well, I'm, I'm going to do this. You want to help? You want to get on board or not? Beautiful. That's really beautiful. Um, how do you build self-confidence? Maybe the taking action is the way you do it. Is that is this related? It, it is. In the book, I, I talk about the eight different sources of confidence, and I kind of outline these different eight sources. And one of them is from Amy Cuddy's power posing, you know, this piece of research that if you strike a power pose like like Superman or Wonder Woman, it um, creates this warm cocktail in your brain that gives you a little boost of confidence. Mm-hmm. Some of those findings have, have been challenged a, a little bit. But in any event, whether it's true or not, it is temporary. And, and I argue that the strongest source of confidence is competence. So um, I, I do a lot of public speaking, and I know people who do, who are professionals in the arena, and they don't, they don't wing it. There's no, you know, getting up on stage with some, you know, kind of loose ideas and a, uh, kind of an idea of where you might want to head and a handful of bullet points you want to make. The truly the best deeply rehearse this this content, they tailor it to an audience, and then they'll rehearse it so in the end it does look natural and it does have a high degree of confidence because the competence is behind it. It's well-researched and well and thoroughly you know, rehearsed and, and prepared. So in any discipline, whether you're preparing for a meeting, whether you're writing code, whether you're giving a presentation, whether you're trying to influence someone else, your own competence will bolster your confidence. That makes a lot of sense, and and I like what you're saying about rehearsing. Um, rehearsing before you go into that important meeting, rehearsing before you have a conversation that's really important, um, and really knowing knowing you, what your argument is, even knowing what the other person's argument is. Amen. Yeah. Right, exactly. Exactly. What's the difference be- between a performance goal and a learning goal? This is really important, and, and I'm, I'm drawing on a lot of the work of Carol Dweck, of course, in which if, if a performance goal is when you, you want to have a, an outcome, a positive outcome, you want to shine. It's almost like it, it's ego-oriented. You want to get the medal, be the star, win the contract. You want to have a performance outcome. Uh, and that type of culture tends to create heroes, like these kinds of companies where 
you know, the meeting can't start until so-and-so gets there. Oh, well, you know, we can't do anything without John or Raphael or mm-hmm. Mary or who, whoever it is. You create these kind of heroic cultures where you hold, pe- hold people up. But a learning goal is different. A learning goal doesn't view failure as failure. It views failure as experimentation. And everything is a constant flywheel of experimentation and improvement. So when you adopt a learner mindset and a growth mindset, you don't view challenges to be ignored or rejected or to stay away from. Because, again, if, if you have a learner mindset and a growth, uh, a, a growth mindset, you might uh, you view learning opportunities as a way to get better for yourself and those around you. But if you have a performance mindset, well, you might be a little intimidated of performance goals because then what if what if you can't achieve them? You know, mm-hmm. what if you're what if you can't get there? What if you're not as gifted and talented or as high potential as other people think you are? You know, you don't want to show any any vulnerability. You constantly want to perform, and therefore you want to put the performance goals within your reach, easily within your grasp so you can always meet them. And that can lead to a culture of complacency. I, I really like this. Uh, the failure is experimentation. And I wish they taught that to all the kids in grammar school. I mean, it's just such a it's such a beautiful thought, you know, that we're, we're always adjusting. We're always figuring things out and, and making it better and learning more. And it's not... It, it's not black or white or a pass or a fail. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, I constantly, we are all constantly learning. And the faster and more honestly that we can admit that, uh, the faster that we, we can learn and support those around us. The great Richard Feynman, you know, the theoretical physicist, he has, he has a great quote. He says, there's a real way to to differentiate between a phony and a real expert. A real expert will easily say, I don't know, teach me. A phony will have all the answers. Phony will will, will come up with, with any answer necessary under any circumstance. But a real uh, student of mastery, a real expert, is perfectly willing to say, I don't know, teach me. Beautiful. Can you talk about building resilience? Yeah. Um, this is a very, you know, a hot topic. Uh, grit, persistence, resilience, stick-to-itiveness, you know, pluck, whatever phrase you want to use, it's absolutely a hallmark trait of the most successful people in work and life. It's been demonstrated uh, most recently in the work of Angela Duckworth, Carol Dweck, and others. But the real question, I think, underlying that is, okay, well, if persistence and resilience in the face of adversity is one of the key traits that you want to engender, you know, in cultures around you, how do you do that? Like, how do you let's say you're a leader or a boss or you're responsible for an organization, how do you create an environment that supports greater persistent 
persistence through task and projects, particularly in the face of adversity. So to answer that question in the in the book, I have a couple studies, but one I'll just describe here. It's from uh, Brigham Young University, and I like this study because it's about families and kids. And I have <laughs> kids, you, you, you might too, or your listeners certainly do. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they did was they followed 325 families who had kids between the ages of 11 and 14. And they followed them over uh, four years. So this is a longitudinal study examining the different behaviors and the cultures in the families, like the parenting styles, the family attitudes, and then whether or not the kids uh, attain those goals that they stated. Okay? Mm -hmm. And at the conclusion the researchers came up with three key ingredients that yield higher levels of persistence. You ready? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Number one, um, they have to have a baseline of a supportive and a loving environment. Or if you translate this into the workplace, they have to have psychological safety, mm-hmm. meaning they have to feel safe in their decision-making regardless of the outcome. So one, a psychologically safe environment. Two, a high degree of autonomy. So in borrowing from the work of Dan Pink, that would be autonomy in terms of the team that you work on, the task that you choose to, to, to complete, the technique you use, and how much time you allocate to it. So, uh-huh. so high levels of, of autonomy. Number three and this is a big one, accountability for the outcomes. In other words, you know, you got to own the outcome. You're in a psychologically safe environment. You get to decide your autonomous choice about how you go about the goals you want to attain. But then three, the parents or the boss or the organization or the culture has an expectation that you're going to own the outcome. You're responsible for it. Beautiful. And that that builds resilience. Yeah, and I I I have an example with our own son. He's 14 years old, and he likes to uh, take a shower in the evening. And but it drives me crazy because every night he goes into the the bathroom and he takes a shower, and then he takes a brand new towel off, off out of the cupboard, and he uses a brand new towel, and then he walks up to his room. And when he's done with it, he drops it on the floor. Mm-hmm. So, right? So, yeah. You know, after a, after a week, he's got you know six or seven towels in his room, uh-huh. and he constantly and he constantly throws them on the floor, and he doesn't pick them up. And I've tr- I tried you know barking at him, I tried nagging him, I tried reminding him, I tried now nothing works. He just ignores me. So one day, I said, I said, Will, if you don't, if, I want you to use one towel, okay? And when you're done with it, I want you to hang it up. And if you don't, I'm going to turn off your cell phone. <laughs> right? Uh-huh. And, and so, you know, he left the towel on the floor. And so I, I, I was taken into the bus stop, and I said, uh, I turned off the phone. Well, you left, it, left your towel on the floor. And he got frustrated. And then two days later, he did it again, and I turned off his phone. And then he never did it again. Incredible. Incredible. So you found yeah, so a, you found a way to make him accountable. 
and he wasn't feeling that way before. Well, I was trying to meet these three criteria of a supportive and loving environment, high degree of autonomy. You know, I tell him he can do what he wants. But three, this is the outcome. If you if you persist in this behavior, this is what's going to happen. Uh-huh. Without any fan. <laughs> and that's it. That's, that's incredible. That's a great story. I'm sure a lot of people listening will be able to use that with their kids, too. Um, so we're just about out of time. I'm wondering if you could share what inspires, what you think will help inspire other people. When you're a oh leader, boy. what helps that? Well, you have to you have to challenge both yourself and those around you. So you have to intro- constantly introduce challenge. Mm-hmm. And and if and if your question is how do you do that as a leader? You have to model that. You have to model the way. So you yourself have to be willing to sort of step out on a ledge, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, and, and own the outcomes. And if you do take those kinds of, of risks, then when you ask people around you to, they'll be much more willing to because you've modeled the way. That makes sense. So that makes a lot of sense. Model for others. Is there any what any last thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Uh, remember to breathe, and and I know that's a trite the trite thing to say, but if if you and I cover this in the last chapter of my book, but if you just take a moment to to pause, take a deep breath, and deeply listen. I mean, truly listen. So one of the key things I talk about in the book is waiting to talk is not the same as listening. Uh, You need to constantly ask questions for which you honestly do not know the answer for. If you constantly ask confirmation and confirming questions like, are you hungry? Do you want to go to lunch now? Those kinds of questions are saying, I'm hungry and I want to go to lunch now. (laughs) So you have to get closer and closer to asking questions for which you honestly don't know the answer to. You'll not only learn more, but you'll build a deeper connection with those around you. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much for taking this time to talk to us today, and I wish you well on your new business. I'm truly delighted to do it. Thank you so much for the invitation. I hope you like this show. If you did, I would really appreciate your help. I need more great reviews in iTunes or Stitcher.com because every great interview we get allows more women like you to discover the show and will help them to succeed too. Please visit iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe to Women's Leadership Success Podcast. Also, I really appreciate you sharing my show with your friends and associates. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining your host, Sabrina Brom, on another Women's Leadership Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can email her at sabrina at sabrinabrahm.com. Since 1989, Sabrina and her team have helped hundreds of women managers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs with valuable trainings, articles, books, and executive coaching. For additional tips, interviews, and free access to Great Leaders Today mini-course, visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com.